Hey, y'all. Welcome to the White Coat, White Collar Podcast, where we help current and aspiring STEM and healthcare professionals demystify the career landscape. I'm your resident host and corporate scientist, Dr. Aurelia Whitmore. Each and every episode, I'm bringing you along as I talk shop with active professionals. We're discussing career journeys from white coat to white collar and everywhere in between. So turn the volume up and let's get this interview started. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for attending the White Coat, White Collar podcast. I'm so excited to have Yin Yin here with us today. Hi, Yin Yin. Hello. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing so good. So there's so much I cannot wait to dive in with you for our discussion today. We actually met in New York City at, uh, well, it was my company event and you stopped by because it was your former company for our picnic. Absolutely. And that's where we met. And since then, I've just been connected with you on LinkedIn and just seen your career progression and all that you're doing in your field as a life science PhD and a life science professional. And so kudos to you. I'm so honored, so happy to have you. you on this call. And yeah, let's not waste any time. Let's get into it. So your background, you have a bachelor's degree in microbiology and you have a Mm -hmm. PhD. It's immunology, microbiology, virology. (laughs) (laughs) And I know we spoke before just on the career journeys of PhDs that want to tap into industry and just how challenging it could be, even from the graduate level. I know I've mentioned to you my experience. I, I was five years into my PhD program. And my advisor didn't have intentions on me graduating at that time, but I ended up securing a postdoc. So it was like, oh, okay, well, I guess you gotta go now. So exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the, in the academic culture, it's really emphasized to kind of do a postdoc in academia. So I know you, you went into your PhD program knowing that you were not going to stay in academia. So tell us a little bit about that and your interactions with your PI to prepare you for what you do now. Absolutely. So I had a lot of lab experience before I joined my PhD. I like to say that like my PhD was probably 20 to 25 years. And I say that because my dad did his PhD while I was growing up Mm. and at the same school. Uh, that's a whole other story. But my dad was the first in my family to get his PhD from the University of Rochester. And then I followed him. Wow. So I grew up literally in the lab. My first job I like to joke about is putting the pipette tips into the boxes. <laughs> and he gave me 25 cents a box. Oh, um, so, so I would say that I had more experience, more exposure to lab, to research than you know, most people. And, you know, I, I was obviously interested in science. Uh, it was, it surrounded my life, right? So doing a bachelor's in basic science was kind of a no-brainer given my background. Um, I actually thought I wanted to do medical school. I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, turns out I didn't want to be a doctor. And then I had to flex really quickly because I was like, well, what job can I do? With a bachelor's degree in science, that's not medicine. Right, right. Um, I did two years as a lab manager, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and there was an aspect of the business side that was really intriguing, right? You have to negotiate for all of the lab materials. 
you have to, you know, kind of stay within the budget. You're also managing everybody's time, the resources, all of those things. But I really like that component way more than the research side of things. I was also much better at it than the research side (laughs) of things. So, you know, you would think that after spending so much time in the lab, I would be a better scientist. But to be honest, I was not a great scientist, full disclosure. But again, it was one of those things where I needed to break out of the lab. I applied to some jobs in the biotech space, right? And it was just, you just didn't get any sort of response. So it became clear I needed to get an advanced degree in order to progress in my career. And I thought that at that point, the economy was starting to go down. Jobs were really hard to find. So a PhD seemed like a really good place to bolster my resume, get more experience, um, wait things out a little bit, network, all of those things, right? Um, so I applied. And obviously, in my in my personal statement, it was a lot more research-focused. I was like, I want to cure everything, you know, et cetera, to to kind of get me in the door. And I did my rotations, found the the PI that I wanted to work with. And, you know, we eventually had that conversation of what do you want to do? And I picked my PI because I thought we had a connection. He was, you know, I, I really liked his personality. I liked the science that he was doing. So I, I trusted him, right? I trusted him so that I could be honest with him. I didn't want to spend six years hiding what I wanted to do from, from my advisors. So I was pretty upfront. I was like, look, listen, I, I don't know what I want to do, but I can't imagine being in research, you know, given my personality, given what I like to do. I don't know that academia is for me. And he had this smile on his face and he's like, I completely agree. I don't see you in the lab. I don't see you writing grants, doing experiments in a more isolated environment. Yeah. That transparency is is awesome between the two of you. For him to say that too, and for you to not be offended, because see me, I probably, I'm so sensitive. I'd be like, wait, wait, what? What? I can't, you don't think I can write a grant? Like, (laughs) I mean, let's be honest, it was definitely like he had seen how I couldn't get some like pretty simple experiments to work. So I think he was relieved also that like my goals are not a Nobel Prize winning lab or anything like that, you know? And, yeah, he was very practical, very realistic. And it was a, all right, well, now that I know what you want to do, right, let me make sure that I either give you the opportunities so that you can pursue what you want. Or if I can't give it, I give you the time to do it, you know. So I was fortunate because I made that communication with him. I didn't feel like, okay, I had to spend every weekend in lab. I had to kill myself writing grants or writing papers if ultimately academia is not where I wanted to be, right? I could take time off to go network, to participate in other things, to volunteer, to do other things that would bolster my resume to prepare me for, you know, graduation or post-grad. Um, so, so to me, that was really important. Otherwise, I think it would be much more stressful trying to do everything as if I was preparing for a postdoc, Right. Um, meanwhile, I don't want a postdoc and I'm trying to do everything else. So that honesty and that open communication, I thought was really important. Yeah. Wow. I know so many 
people with PhDs and advanced degrees and their relationship with their PIs were not like that. So you were blessed (laughs) to be in in a situation like that. And you know what else is so cool? I didn't know that about you, that your dad actually has a PhD as well. And your your first job was organizing pipettes. So, I mean, you you did have laboratory experience for a long time. I had a lot. Like, you know, I knew what a pipette was before I knew what, like, a Nintendo system was. <laughs> so, <laughs> it yeah. was an interesting childhood. <laughs> yeah, that is. That's, that is interesting. But the transparency, man, that's, that's awesome. That's really, 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 really good. And so when you graduated, did you have a job secured already or did you graduate and then have to figure that out? Tell us about that. Yeah. So kind of like you, I, first of all, I did not take five years to graduate. So you are way ahead of me. (laughs) My goal was to have a job at the time that I defended because my strategy was if I have a job, they have to let me graduate. Right. Like the whole point of doing your PhD is to get a job. So I've got the job. You got to let me go. And so I basically spent the last six months of my PhD probably working harder than I did the five and a half years before then. I was wrapping up experiments. I was writing my thesis, but I was also networking like crazy, doing information interviews. I really wanted to do consulting. So I was prepping for um, case studies, writing resumes, cover letters, all of those things, all in an effort so that like I could have it, everything done at the same time. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it because it was really stressful. And like literally the week before I defended, I was in Atlanta at the time and I flew to Boston twice in one week to interview for two separate consulting firms which is a completely different mindset than defending your PhD. Absolutely. And by the time I got back, I was like, I literally had to read my thesis again, because I had to turn to my thesis a month before I defended. I literally read my thesis the night before I defended as to like study up on my project. You pulled an all-nighter on your thesis. After six years, I had to pull an all-nighter on my thesis. I know. I swear if my committee members here that they might revoke my PhD, but, um, but yeah, so, so I did, I had, I had my job at stem cell and I was starting two weeks after I defended. Right. So when my boss, uh, he was like, what do you want me to say during my intro to you? Right. I was like, I don't care what you say. Just tell them I have a job in two weeks. Yes. <laughs> That's big facts. That's all that matters. <laughs> You can say whatever else you want about me. Just say that I've got a job in two weeks and and that was it. So I did not want to do a postdoc. Wow. That is amazing. So as you're saying how you network right before graduating and that whole process of going back and forth, that's, that's similar to my experience as well. But I didn't have to do case studies. So why don't you talk a little more about that? Like when you're applying for consulting jobs, coming from a life science PhD background that you, you don't do case studies, maybe with your cell assays, what happened, you know, you, you may write up something like that, but it's not an actual case study. So how did you even right. prepare yourself to do something that you didn't even do or you weren't trained to do in your, in your PhD program? 
So I would say that the best thing I learned out of my PhD program was how to learn a new skill, right? Like, you know, you read about this protocol, nobody's ever done it before, and you got to figure it out. Nope, nobody else is going to teach you, right? So you find resources online, YouTube. So case studies, just to kind of take a step back, basically, they're business cases, you solve business problems. And they can be general or, you know, it can be like a banking question, um, restaurants, oil companies, entertainment, anything. And they'll, you know, it's like, this company is your client. They've noticed that in the past five years, the profits have declined. They want you to figure out what's going on, right? Just like very generic question. And then you have to go in and like do a little digging, like, oh, have we, can I see the financial statement? So what are the revenues? What are their profits? What are their expenses, right? Um, and you kind of have to dig a little bit. And, and these are all cases that like somebody has created, right? So they'll give you certain pieces of evidence that you have to look through. And for life sciences, it's usually like so-and-so company has this molecule that they want to take to market and they want to make X amount of dollars by this point, should they do it, right? So you need to look at like patient size and what the current treatments are and who's willing to pay for it. Right, right. All of that stuff. There's so many websites out there at this point that walk you through it. You just have to Google it and find it. And then the most important thing is practicing. So I was practicing with anybody who would do it with me. <laughs> your dog, um, your cats. <laughs> literally, I had, so there were like, there were these websites that would link you to people who also wanted to practice. So I am literally sitting in lab doing case studies. And like, I'm sure my, my lab mates were like, what is this girl doing? She's not, pick, she's, she hasn't picked up a bike pet in months. And like, I'm literally talking with somebody in Sweden doing a case study, you know, trying to, to do this. And I did about three a day um, at my peak. And that was, it, you know, like you do one and then you give one. And that's how you learn. So, and each one takes about 45 minutes. So I spent about six hours a day practicing for these case studies to get prepped for it because I hadn't done it before. You know, if I was in business school or something like that, they have clubs. They have consulting clubs and you can just go and do it. But I didn't have that. So you just kind of have to like jerry-rig it and figure it out. Right. And that was my next question. You sound like it took a lot of business skills, not just like the negotiating side, but understanding the finance side, what's a profit, what's a loss, how to be able to look at those transcripts from a company and help them make a decision, not only a decision that advances the health and the healthcare community, but a decision that advances them as a company. So that's a lot to have to do. And you you did it. You did it. So tell us about your role now. You're director of BD at HEMA, which is a, why don't you tell us about the company and tell us about what you do. Yeah, so HUMA, we've been around for about 10 years. We're based in the UK. We specialize in what's called remote patient monitoring. So basically, doctors are able to interact to monitor their patients while their patients are at home. Obviously, during COVID times, we saw how important that is. You know, we're really proud because we were able to help COVID patients in the UK, in Germany, in UAE because of our platform. Doctors were able to, to monitor the patients and, you know, at a certain point, if they declined, then call them in. But then if they didn't need to, they could stay at home, you know, and help help that capacity because that was, that was a huge issue. 
obviously during during the height of the pandemic. So that's what we do. We also, you know, we use our platform in a number of different ways. So obviously to, to help patients in, in their treatment, but it can also be used to uh, run digital clinical trials. So instead of having a patient go to a site that is hours away, they can participate if it's possible in the site just, you know, by providing the information to their doctors via the app. And then what the goal is to take all of that information that the patients provide, right, the BP, the glucose, the heart rate, all of that stuff, and we want to create what's called digital biomarkers. So that way you can kind of predict whether or not somebody might be more prone to a heart attack. For COVID, it was like taking a look at certain specific vital signs and perhaps they're more likely to deteriorate or they're more likely to get better, right? And so that helps doctors prioritize um, who may need more attention. Right. And it helps with timing as well. Exactly. Exactly. So so that's what HEMA does. And we recently expanded to the U.S. and I am on the U.S. business development side. I'm on the commercial team. And basically in my role, you know, I work with our clients to help them find a good solution for using our platform. So our platform is very modular. We're able to basically be device agnostic. So Apple versus Android, where, you know, we're able to be on both of them. Disease agnostic, so depending on which vital signs you want to look at, right, you are able to, you know, it can be for COVID monitoring. It can be for diabetes monitoring, pre- and post-surgical monitoring, all of those things. It's just my job is to figure out what the client wants and help them build that ideal platform so that they can they can help their patients. That is so awesome. So, wow. I just, my brain just has so many questions. I know when the <laughs> listeners hear this, this episode, they'll probably have a million questions too. But, well, first let's backtrack. Maybe let's define what business development is. So business development is a very broad term. Right. And, you know, it can be sales. Say Everything is sales. It's just on the level. Right. When I was at Stem Cell, I was a sales rep. I was an account manager. Um, and so sales in that respect was selling the media. Right. And teaser or whatnot. And that was sales. And there was also that scientific component because you wanted to make sure that ultimately what you're doing is helping the researcher. So they come to you and they're like, I need X to grow. And it's your job to figure out what is the best product for them. It might not be, you know, the most popular product that you sell. It might be something else that you have, but it's your job to kind of figure that out. What I do now is on a much bigger scale because, you know, it's a longer sales cycle. It's more about developing that relationship, understanding what they need holistically, right? Because it's not just a specific experiment that they complete in a week's time. This is something that can go for three months. This is something that can go for a much longer time to help patients. So there is that. There's a lot of research to understand what they need, what this disease is, what patients are really looking for, what's the gap, and how we can help them. But it's also, you know, finding partnerships. So it's not necessarily like company X pays us and we give them something, right? It can be that a company has a capability that we don't have. So we say, hey, let's join forces. And so if a hospital system is looking for something that both of us provide, 
let's create a joint product so that they can have the best of both worlds, right? Um, so it's, it's a lot of relationship building. It is sales, but it's not as like direct as just you need X, so I'm going to give you Y, and in one week, we're all done. Mm-hmm. Right, definitely, absolutely. In this role, are you also maybe looking at the business side of things financially, or is that also part of your responsibility, or is it more so the product fit in the strategic partnerships? Well, I mean, I think, you know, pricing, things like that, negotiating the price, negotiating licensing, things like that, that's all part of it, but we have an entire other finance department that looks at the health of the company, right? And looking at costs and, you know, our expenditures and looking at the revenue, you know, what we're projected to do, what our targets are, things like that. That's more of the finance department. Gotcha. And so it sounds like if we could maybe differentiate between consulting and business development, consulting, you're kind of responsible for maybe all of those things, the finance, the product, and the partnerships, and maybe with BD, your focus more, or maybe if we could do a percentage-wise, your focus more, 90% of your time is focused on the product fit and the partnership. Consulting is really, you know, clients bring us on for any number of reasons, but ultimately they have a problem they, they want you to solve. So it can be from kind of figure out why we're not making a profit, right? But also when I was like my firm, you know, my former firm, they did a lot of strategy work. So kind of a what's going to happen in the future? You know, where is the market going to go? Where is it going to be in five years? And how do we get there? So it's because the lead time in getting a drug onto the market is such a long time, right? Because you have to do the research, the clinical trials, et cetera, to get there. So it's a lot of strategy of understanding what drugs are already on the market, what drugs are in the pipeline, Mm -hmm. um, and where it's going to go in the future. And there's also the commercialization. So now that you've got the drug, you think, you know, it's going to pass phase three clinical trials, it's going to get FDA approved. Then you have to put all the pieces together to sell the drug. Um, you have to get your sales team in place, your distribution in place, making sure that um, uh, insurance companies are going to pay for it, marketing, all of those things, right? So that's more commercialization launch strategy. So that's what a lot of consulting does. And there is the aspect of you figure out the game plan, like that strategy, and then there's implementation or project management. And you're kind of like tracking everything. The deadlines are getting hit. Um, you identify any risks that are coming up, things like that. So that's a lot of what I did as a consultant. And now as business development, first of all, you know, I just have my one, I work for Huma. As a consultant, I work for a lot of different companies, came in basically as a contractor. Um, and then once that contract was done, I moved on to a new project, new client. Mm-hmm. At Huma, obviously, I work for Huma. And it's more about bringing in that business, developing those partnerships for the long-term health and growth of Cuba. Right, right. That's awesome. You explained that so well. I'm sure all listeners <laughs> will be like, oh, that's the difference. I've got it. <laughs> and I'm glad that you emphasize too with consulting, it's almost like contracting because you're working with so many different groups. Whoever the company pretty much brings on as a new client, um, which can be multiple companies, you're assigned a project 
or an aspect of a project from one of the companies? Yeah. So, I mean, there are obviously consultants who work independently, right? So they have to handle everything in terms of finding the project, but then also making sure that they have their own benefit. You know, their salary is very dependent on their project. Whereas when you work for a consulting firm, the good news is all of that's taken care of for you. I don't have to stress about getting insurance. I don't have to stress about developing like a 401k, like all of that stuff. It's just like you're working for any other company. Right. Um, but you do get different projects. And I think it's good and bad. You know, it's for somebody who's starting out in the industry, it's fantastic because you get so much exposure. You have these three months, six months, nine month engagements. You learn what it's like to work at a big company, a small company, a startup company without having to like apply for another job. Right. I think what's challenging is that you do have to shift a lot. Right. You, you get comfortable. And then just when you start getting good at something, you have to like pop into a new job because your contract's done. And then, you know, hopefully you develop good relationships with your clients. They become your coworkers, right? And then when your contract's done, that's it. You know, you can obviously still keep in contact with them, but you don't see them anymore. You don't see them on a day-to-day basis. And to me, that was one of the hardest things was that I would develop such really good relationships with them because I worked with them more than I worked with my consulting colleague. And then you're just like, all right, I'm done. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I totally get that. I do. So I want you to give advice to two types of people. The first person I want you to give advice to is maybe the PhD student that they know they don't want to stay in academia and they don't know what they want to do. I mean, you knew you kind of want to go into consulting. You, you know, we're meeting with people in Sweden you were a part of these programs. You did all of this work because you knew that's what you wanted to do. But what advice would you give to someone who knows that they know they don't want to be in academia, but they don't know what career path to take? Like, what is step one if you just know I don't want to be in these four walls of a lab, but I also don't know what's out there in the world? Oh, yeah. I mean, to be fair, I figured out I wanted to consulting six months before I graduated. And that was only because I talked with people in consulting. Mm, Like I didn't know what I wanted to do for the first five years. And that was terrifying because you just know you don't want to do something. You don't know what you do want to do. But at the end of the day, you're like, well, I know I need a job. Yeah. So like, it's a lot of pressure and almost sometimes, you know, that freedom is terrifying because at least with postdocs, with academia, it's a known route right? People can help you. It's predictable. you got to just talk with people. LinkedIn is your best friend, right? I connected with so many people with LinkedIn and I looked for PhDs. I looked for people who recently graduated for two reasons. One, you know, I think we all have this like TV movie scenario where you, you you get a meeting with the president of a company and he's so impressed with you or she's so impressed with you. They're like, you're hired, right? That doesn't happen because you can't even get them on the line. So it's not helpful. Also, they are very successful people, but they probably had a very long career and their experiences starting out 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the environment is very different than when you're starting out now. So the strategies 
are different. The approaches are different. And it's great to have them as a connection, possibly as a mentor, but it's not necessarily practical because they don't have that like firsthand experience of, I just did this a year ago. Right, right. The other reason of picking somebody that's a bit newer is they're a bit more junior. They're probably not as busy. They probably remember how scary it was to find that new job and they're going to be a lot more sympathetic. And they're probably flattered by the ego boost of somebody reaching out to them and wanting their help. Yeah. And they know more about the updated tools, you know, like use this website, this LinkedIn. There's so many resources now that weren't even available when I was doing it, right? Social media is way bigger. Clubhouse is so popular, especially in life sciences. I'm sure there's some sort of like networking capability there. I just haven't used it. So yeah, I would suggest you talk to people and just like, you have to write, you have to write a good email or a good message. Like that is so important. Yes. Um, I've gotten LinkedIn messages that I will be honest, I have like immediately ignored because they either spell my name wrong and it's like, come on, it's, it's literally right there. <laughs> They're unprofessional, right? They're just like, hey, Yin Yin. Uh, you have time to chat. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know you. We're not there. Right. You know, I think PhDs as a whole, generalizing are not good at professional communication. I'm just going to say it, you know, they're, they're too casual. They've got typos all over the place. They're not clear about why they want to talk to you. They're like, Hey, do you have time to chat? And I'm like, what am I, what am I talking about? You know? Am I, am I talking about like my consulting career? Do you want to sell me something? Like, what are we talking about? Do you um, want to be in, do you so, want to participate in Forex? Like, right. Like, and how long is it going to take? Is this, is this like a five minute conversation? Are you just going to ask me for a job? Like what's going on? Right. So I would say like, be professional, dear doctor, so-and-so, right. I don't refer to myself as doctor, but I feel like when you're asking someone for a favor, like just err on the side of caution, just be like, dear Dr. Wong, you know, my name is blah, blah, blah. I'm a student, blah, blah, blah. Right. I saw that you got your PhD here and now you're doing this. I'm interested in that. Would you have 20 minutes, 30 minutes to talk to me about your career path? Right. Something like that. Really simple, really to the point. And you're going to get responses and like have a list of questions in mind. Don't make them do the work. They're taking time to talk to you. So have questions of what you want to do and like do a little research beforehand, like know about the company. Don't just be like, oh, what is Huma? Right. Because then I'm going to be like, well, you found me on LinkedIn. My profile literally says what we're doing. Like, And you describe you it so about? well. I love your LinkedIn page. And thank you. First of all, thank you. Um, it's taken a lot of time to develop it, right? Don't don't expect that you're going to have a great LinkedIn page right away. Find people that have LinkedIn profiles that you like and blatantly just steal from them. Like, I can't even tell you. <laughs> like, I will go somewhere and I will, like, see someone's LinkedIn and I'm like, I really like, you know, what they said there. Obviously, tweak it so that it's relevant for you. But... I think it's really, you know, we're all kind of, this information is public. We're all just kind of helping each other out. Yes, that's awesome. And (laughs) as far as LinkedIn, like, when do you make time to, like, do professional tasks that benefit you? So, like, keeping up with your LinkedIn, um, maybe keeping your resume up to date. Like, how do you balance the demands of work, the demands of your personal life, 
and the demands of your professional personal life? Yeah. So LinkedIn, you know, once you have your profile kind of where you like it, you, you just kind of leave it there, right? Like I haven't, obviously when you change jobs or when you're looking for jobs, that's when you really kind of tweak your profile. I'm probably not as good about posting as a lot of people are. And there are like entire algorithms about, you know, it's just like any other social media. The more you post, the higher your profile sits on top of everybody else's feed, et cetera, right? You want to connect with people, but I find that it's important to be strategic about who you're connecting with, mm -hmm. right? Don't just connect with everybody and don't just, there are sometimes people at me or want to add me and I don't know why they want to add me. And it could be for spam. I don't know why somebody wants to add me and I'll oftentimes ignore it, right? Because I'm like, we don't have any mutual connections. I click into their profile and their profile is just, it's nothing. Not nothing as in they don't have good qualifications, but literally like it's a blank profile. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't, again, I really don't know anything about you. So make sure you're connecting with people, current colleagues, past colleagues, people you've met networking. You know, you want an opportunity to keep connected. It's really something that it takes as much time as you want it to take. Sometimes I go on LinkedIn every day and I see posts and I'll like them and I'll interact. Some days it'll be like, you know, a while before I go in and make a post. So it's not something you have to do all the time, every day, top of mind, but it is important. As far as your resume is concerned, for me, it's usually just if I need a new job or something, or if, if a recruiter's contacted me and I need to update it, I'll do that. You know, best practice is probably to update it whenever you have like any sort of big accomplishment that you want to include on there. So it's like fresh in your mind, whatnot. Gotcha. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for that advice. This is why I absolutely just love talking with you because you just keep things very real. You keep things so real. You're open. You're honest. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. I'd love to have you on the show again. You have to come back on. Anytime. <laughs> Thank this you. has been so much fun. Yes, it really has. Thank you so much, Yin Yin. Thank you. And everyone else, refer to her as Dr. Wong. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That concludes today's episode of the White Coat, White Collar podcast. If you like these discussions and want to continue hearing more, please subscribe and leave a comment on the platform that you've tuned into today. For more resources on unique career options for STEM and healthcare professionals, please follow White Coat, White Collar on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you love what I'm doing and would like to be a sponsor to help me continue demystifying the career landscape, please visit whitecoatwhitecollar.com forward slash sponsor. Thank you for tuning in and all the best on your career journey. Remember, take the journey one step at a time and don't be too hard on yourself. You got this. Until next time.